Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on June 25th, 2019. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode, we can define it, you know, in relatively basic scientific terms. That is a combination of collagen, um, which is the flexible part, and hydroxyapatite, which is the hard mineral part. And you put those together, and you get something that's both strong and flexible. But that's not really satisfying. You know, that doesn't really you know get at I think the the meaning and the poetry and the expression of of bone. That's Brian Sweetek. He describes himself as a fossil fanatic and as a, quote, collection of 206 some-odd bones and associated soft tissues, end quote. He writes the Scientific American Paleontology blog, Laylapse. That's the mythological dog who always caught what he was chasing. And he's the author of the new book, Skeleton Keys, The Secret Life of Bone. He recently visited Scientific American, where we talked about the book. I had an experience a few years ago that was really eye-opening. I, I had to have some dental work done. And instead of the regular x-ray, I had that new thing where they swivel around the whole front of your face. And then the dentist showed me the x-ray, the panoramic x-ray. And she pointed out to me how, as a, uh, a teeth grinder, I had actually widened out my jawbone. And you could see the, the new bone that I had created by my actions. But that's happening all the time in our total skeletons. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, there's this constant process where new bone is being created, new bone is being eaten up. Like one of the examples, um, you know, just to pick uh, an extreme that sort of, you know, proves the rule is uh, osteoporosis, which, you know, affects a lot of people in, in older age, can affect people at other times of life. But this is this imbalance where not enough new bone is forming or the bone is being resorbed too quickly or both at the same time. But the whole reason it happens is because we have this constant turnover in our skeletons. And it should be pretty obvious to see. I mean, we, we know, you know, we don't, we're not born, you know, as adults, that would be awful and horrifying. Um, you know, we're born small and our bones aren't fused yet. In fact, that we have more individual pieces of bone connected by cartilage that all fused together into our, you know, 206, you know, more or less skeletons. And those continue to change. So even though we experience it, it's, at, it's like geologic time. It's at such a rate that we don't really see it. And we need to like stop and think about it. Or there needs to be something like a pathology or something that's changed. Um, and this is the, the same stuff. Um, you know, it, it's really kind of wonderful. I think that the same process that maintains our skeletons, that grows our skeletons, also allows them to heal from things like fractures. And I mean, unfortunately, it can also lead to things going awry and lead to bone growing places you don't want it or changing the shape of your bones. But it's all very basic. It's part of this, this the same outcome of uh, our skeletons as living tissue. Sharks have done great yes. with <laughs> cartilage, mm -hmm. just cartilage. So what was the advent of bone able to do for evolution? I mean, quite a bit. I mean, really, when you think about um, creatures, not just with skeletons, because as you just pointed out, you know, sharks have skeletons, but they're made of cartilage. Uh, and, and they've, you know, sort of, you know, 400 million years is a pretty fine record. Um, bone as a tissue, a skeleton made of, of bone and not just of cartilage or some other material. Um, you know, everything from, you know, the biggest dinosaurs that we can think of, these, these things that are, you know, over 110 feet long and 45 some odd tons down to these little, you know, amphibians. I think the smallest frog in the world is like the size of a fly. Like it can sit like, you know, on a penny with plenty of room to spare. Um, and it's all a skeleton. It's still made of bone. And uh, 
bone as a versatile um, sort of construction material, if you want to use that that sort of analogy, um, it really opens up a vast possibility of different body shapes of different kinds of movements. If you think of all the, the vertebrates, you know, whether, you know, bats that fly, you know, dolphins that swim, uh, you know, us walking upright, um, all that stuff comes from bone. But what bone initially did was it was armor. It was protection. It really goes back to this pre-bone tissue called uh, aspidin that it took me a little while to wrap my head around it because when I read about it for the first time – and this is something that appeared um, you know, over 400 million years ago and these little um, – Basically, proto fish, early fish that looked something like uh, Roombas with the tail sticking out the back end. You know, so this kind of like round thing. They didn't have jaws yet; just this hole at the front and this tail at the back. So that makes me think of a horseshoe crab. Something, yeah, something that looks similar like that, but a vertebrate. Um, mm-hmm. And they didn't have uh, an endoskeleton quite like we do. They they had a support structure inside, but it wasn't made of bone tissue yet. Uh, and they had this outer covering of this material called espidin. That when I read about it. It said it's acellular bone tissue and I was like, well, what does that mean? Because our bones are cellular. They have their bone cells. We just talked about that a moment ago, like what they're always always doing. So how does that work? And it was basically bone as teeth because we have acellular tissue, like the enamel of our teeth. It does, you know, once we've got it, once we grow it and, and we have it as uh, adults, it, it doesn't change any further. We can wear it down but it doesn't grow or maintain itself. So basically the first bone was much more like a tooth and it was part of this – outer armor back when uh, invertebrates, all these weird arthropods, you know, they're left over from, you know, the, the Cambrian explosion were still the dominant forms of, you know, life on Earth and in, in the oceans. Um, and then once bone appeared, once bone, you know, originated as this outer protective covering, um, then other parts of the skeleton started to become mineralized. And we see some of this today. Like there's some – you can be injured and grow bone in part of your body where it's not normally supposed to be. People have even grown bone in their salivary glands of all places. Um, so That's not good. No. no I, I, I'm trying to imagine how that would feel and just even that now is kind of making me like you know, tongue around in my mouth a little bit like from the sympathy yeah. pain at, at the thought. Um, but you know, once you had this outer coating, you know, the way that some paleontologists describe this as that we have a sunken endoskeleton. So the beginnings of our skeletons were on the outside, and then the internal skeleton that already existed started to become mineralized, and that um, provided some advantage in uh, the biomechanics of moving around, like muscle attachments, being able to maybe get a little stronger push and pull because muscles in our skeletons are constantly interacting with each other. So it's one of these things where it's like you have this, you know, accidental. Mutation, just something comes up, it turns out to be advantageous. And then the way the physiology physiology of it worked allowed you know, the endoskeleton to eventually form, you know, to lose that outer shell and gain some more flexibility and that internal support. But um, you know, and, and that's you know the origins of it. But really what I love about bone and what I find so fascinating about it is um, – for example, we're here in New York City. Uh, I went to the American Museum of Natural History as a kid and fascinated by the dinosaur skeletons. I mean I go back during this visit to do much the same thing I did as when I was five. But I can look at the skeleton of their apatosaurus or any dinosaur, any skeleton really there and say, okay, this is the corresponding part in my skeleton. It's the same chassis, just a slightly different expression and to look at you know, just the variety that's been able to exist, you know, uh, within – you know, we all learn the five classes I guess in elementary school that you know, we've got fish and amphibians and reptiles and mammals and birds. Um, but we've all got more or less the same parts, whether it's a, a fish or a tyrannosaur or a frog or whatever it is that we're able to see, you know, 
that we share this common ancestry that's built on bone. You say in the book, uh, Neil Shubin, of course, his book, The Inner Fish, he reminded us that uh, we have this remnants of fish in us. Mm -hmm. But you say, actually, we are fish. And I really like that. I mean, basically, we're all just variations on fish. I mean, everything us, elephants, marmosets, mm -hmm. you know, it's just it, – it's fish that have figured out different ways to live. Oh, absolutely. And uh, th that came partially from uh, one of Shubin's colleagues, uh, Ted Deschler at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. Uh, I, I went to go see Tiktaalik while that skeleton was still there uh, before it was um, sent back to Canada. Uh, explain what yeah, Tiktaalik is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Tiktaalik is uh, one of the keystone fossils in understanding uh, that one of our favorite evolutionary transitions from from water to, to land. And it was something that, you know, for a long time, this is also like the culture of science, like some of these things that we we um, set upon as you know a glorious example of evolutionary change. It kind of has its own momentum to it. The idea used to be that there are these lungfish and they're in these drying ponds and they kind of flop from one to another. And those that were able to flop a little bit better between them, you know, eventually were able to evolve legs and and kind of drag themselves until they're able to move around on their own. It turns out that that's not true. The beginnings of our limbs really started in the water. Um, you know, not only the construction of having one upper arm bone and then two lower or arm bones and a whole bunch of fiddly bits below that that became digits, um, that those evolved in an aquatic environment. It wasn't you – know, and then it allowed for some movement on land, but the classic story wasn't true and Tiktaalik was you know, part of that. There's actually you know, um, at least half a dozen if not more of these you know, fishapod type creatures that are sort of in between the water and the land where they're just like – they really lived at the water's edge. You know, maybe you could take little forays out and, and, and come back. But Tiktaalik is one of these fossils. It kind of looks like a slightly fishier version of like an alligator and some of them got to alligator size and it was living in a similar way. We think it was something like an ambush predator. Um, but, you know, because it had a really glorious fossil and, you know, came from an interesting place and, you know, Neil's a great storyteller, it became one of these keystone fossils. There are other ones, things like Pandarichthys and uh, Acanthostega and all these other famous ones. But Tiktaalik has kind of become the, the poster child, which even Ted, you know, called it. But I, I went to go see this fossil and, um, you know, for me, it was like meeting a celebrity, you know, because, you know, cover of nature, you know, right. <laughs> that's, you know, in our geeky <laughs> circle, that's, you know, about as good as you can get. So, um but I was talking to Ted about this and um, saying like, well, how you know, critical are fossils like Tiktaalik to understanding this transition? And uh, this would be you know, his opportunity to really toot his own horn because you know, he worked with, with uh, Shubin you know, up in Ellesmere, you know, digging out these fossils in the extreme cold. And you know, he could have said, you know, yeah, this is like the really key iconic thing. He's like, well, really the, the vertebrate body plan as we know it has been – was said even before that for the past about 400 million years or so. Um, it says variations on a theme, and you know part of this. Uh, you know, you mentioned that, that we are fish. It's like, yeah, I, I wanted to include that in there because this gets into um, the systematics and the philosophy of how we name and organize things. It's a, it's a question that I often run into uh, from the dinosaur side, saying like, wait, if if birds are dinosaurs and dinosaurs are reptiles and aren't birds reptiles, it's like, yeah, that that follows. That's true. And and the old classification scheme, the way that we broke things down, you know, it was basically starting from the modern and going backwards. And you see all these divisions, but as you get into the fossil record, those divisions disappear and one group slides into another group. So really, you know, we can look at fish today, modern fish, as a distinct group, this sort of top-down view. But if we take the evolutionary view and like look for connections rather than differences, 
yeah, every vertebrate that we see, you know, including us, we are fish. And it's it's uh, if you know what to look for, if you know the the sort of keys, you can identify, you know, all the parts that we have in, in our body were there in fish first. You talk in the book about these little modifications that have a big effect on how we can move. And one the example you one example you give is if you ask your dog to give you five, you yeah. ha, you have to do it upright where your your arm is perpendicular to the ground, and the dog can respond that way. But the dog can't do it sideways. A cat can do it sideways, though. Yes, because they have different wrist structures. That's right. Yeah. So I mean, this is something one of the advantages of uh, living with pets. <laughs> yeah. So this was inspired by just interacting on a daily basis with you know my own cat Margarita, who you know in the morning, if I don't remember to close the door all the way, she'll come in and she'll boot me on the face, and it's that sideways kind of turn. And it's the same thing when I see her play with a ball or a mouse or something like that. She's able to do that, and you know because uh, that's the way cats evolved to be predators that they use the, their their paws and their claws to grab things and pull it close. Um, I should just say I got slapped in the face. By a cat at six o'clock this morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all familiar with this. Yeah. So good, like readers would, would get this immediately. Um, and you know, they evolved. You know, kind of. Uh, you know, with the exception of the cheetah, which is a little bit different. They largely evolved as ambush predators. That they're jumping out of things and grabbing it and then biting it. Dogs, um, you know, are descended from wolves, and those are pursuit predators. So they're the motion of their limbs is very much about running and then getting close enough to use their jaws. You know, on whatever it is that they're they're pursuing. Um, so that change the motion of, of their limbs. So like an out-and-out out race, like I said, with the exception of something like a, a cheetah, which is adapted a little bit differently, you know, a dog's a better endurance runner and that's reflected in the range of motion that they have. So my German Shepherd Jet, like when I, you know, want to tell him he's a good boy and put my hand out to get five, I, you know, put my palm out down and relatively flat. If I made him, you know, when basically when we shake with the dog, we're doing it on their mm-hmm. terms and their range of motion. They can't turn those paw pads sideways without, you know, laying over and then turning their whole arm. It's it's. Uh, you know, I threw dinosaurs in there as well because you know when we all do the uh, you know impression of a T Rex or a Velociraptor, <laughs> um, you know, it's usually with the um, palms facing down and the wrists, you know, the bunny hands kind kind of thing, uh, because that's how they are in Jurassic Park, right? And, and but unfortunately, you may be shocked to find this out. Jurassic Park is not necessarily entirely scientifically accurate. Um, dinosaur wrists, and I'm the theropod ones, the things like Velociraptor and, and T-Rex, um, it's like a chicken wing, that they don't have that turning flexibility that we do. So um, what we usually say is, is that they're clappers, not slappers, that they had to hold their palms facing each other rather than their palms facing down. If they wanted to get that um, – that sort of angle on it, they'd have to like move their entire arm to then move the wrist into such a way that it didn't have the same flexibility that that we do. But you know, because we're us and we're you know we we are very manipulative primates in the way that and, and that's been very key to to our own evolution. Um, it's easy to look at other animals and say like, oh yeah, they can move just like we do, but like that's actually not not true at all. There's distinct limits to the range of motion that's possible, and we're kind of weird in in what we're capable of. A lot of that goes back to you know, our ancestors' life in the trees um, and being able to move around in this sort of three-dimensional, you know, more so than in other environments, but like this this environment has a little bit more complexity um, in it. And uh, I, I, shoulder blades were something that really struck me when I looked at the human skeleton um, because they're not really 
attached very well to the rest of it. You would think that, you know, as much as we use our arms and our hands, like even getting here, you know, opening doors, swiping my Metro card, all this stuff, you know, this morning, um, that we'd have a really solid attachment of our arms and our hands, the, the rest of our, our bodies, something like, um, you know, how our thigh bone, our femur goes into our hip socket. That's a pretty solid looking socket. Um, but if you follow the bones of your hand and your arm and you go all the way up uh, to the top of your humerus, there's a pocket on your shoulder blade um, that receives that end of the humerus. And then your collarbone goes from the top of your chest and goes over to attach to the, the shoulder blade as well. Uh, but your shoulder blade, it's its not glued onto the bone. It's not attached to anything. It just slides back and forth and your arm is attached to that. And the only like strong connection is basically between your collarbone and the top of your rib cage, which you know everything else is being held in there by soft tissues. And it gives us our range of motion, but also you know is why we have problems dislocating our shoulders. And you know the, there's flexibility, but there's also a cost to it. And that's why – a human being can throw a baseball 100 miles an hour and it can, and he can throw it 100 miles an hour overhand or three quarters or, you know, probably lose some velocity, but sidearm and a chimp, which is way stronger than an adult human being, um, can only kind of push uh, an object that it's trying to toss or it could toss it underhand. Yeah, um, um, I think chimps have a fair amount of mobility because they they still are pretty good in the trees. But the um, primates that I use an example were uh, olive baboons because they they spend a lot more time on the ground. They're a lot more quadrupedal. Their shoulder blades are uh, arranged in a way that's a lot more like a dog or a cat, sort of to the sides. And they can only do under underhand. And I remember picking this up when I was taking a, a primatology course in college, and the professor was talking about how olive baboons like will sometimes you know get annoyed with tourists and throw rocks at them, but they have to throw underhand. So if things were different and, – and this sort of struck me because for a while – and this wasn't in, in the book, but I always found it kind of you know, an interesting idea. All of baboons were taken as a great example of early humans because they lived out in the grasslands. So back when the sort of like man the hunter hypothesis was big, um, it wasn't chimpanzees that were taken as you know our, our best example of what um, you know, our early relatives were like. It was all of baboons because of the, where they lived in their lifestyle. And uh, just thinking about that and like if we had evolved more directly from from that kind of ancestor um, that we might not have baseball. It might be you know the World Series might be softball because we can only do underhand. Right. Underhand slow pitch yeah, softball. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you start the book with this incredible story about this guy at the Smithsonian. Yeah. Why don't you just give us a little tease about this? Oh, experience? that's Grover Krantz, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was before I really knew I was going to write um, Skeleton Keys, and I was in town um, in, in, in D.C. to see – I forget why I was there, but I was with a friend of mine, Miriam Goldstein, who's um, another science communicator, uh, used to work for Deep Sea News. And um, we wanted to go tour around and look at some bone stuff. And I was like, oh, it's really cool because at the time there was an exhibit called Written in Bone about um, – I believe it was you know archaeology and historical um, you know osteology in um, – that, that part of the country um, in the Chesapeake Bay area and um, a lot of it focused on pathology and different things like that. But there was a skeleton that stood out from all the rest. There was a you know, much more recent um, skeleton at the very end of the exhibit. It was a skeleton of uh, anthropologist Grover Krantz and I had run into him – You know. Uh, Weirdly enough, I wish I could have said that I was familiar with the body of his academic work beforehand. I mostly knew him because he appeared sometimes on Bigfoot documentaries um, because he was a fan of the idea that that uh, Sasquatch was an actual creature. Um, but I was really taken by the story because for the the – 
reconstruction that they did, you know, much like you would reconstruct a dinosaur or anything else. Uh, they, the um, curators there, or the, the preparators there took a photograph of him and one of his wolfhounds and, you know, I guess he kept several wolfhounds that he loved very much and as they passed away, he, he skeletonized them and he saved those and he wanted to, um, you know, keep teaching through, through his osteology, you know, after he passed away and, you know, part of the stipulation was to take his dogs as, as well as him. Um, and it seemed for a while he was probably going to just be in a in a cabinet, which well, is before the bones. He, he the whole body went to the uh, the body the farm. farm. Yes, yeah. yes, to to be de- defleshed, and um, so that's but, for teaching forensics. That's right. Yeah, and seeing how bodies break down, and you know, sort of things like if you find this kind of beetle on a body, you can tell like how long it's been. A lot of, like the stuff that you end up seeing on bones or CSI and things like that yeah. comes from the actual research done at these places. Um, but you know, after Krantz um, passed away, it seemed like he might be in a drawer for a little while. But they had, because of this exhibit, this opportunity to kind of make his wish come true. So they took this photo of one of his wolfhounds jumping up at him. They had to alter a little bit because I think when they did the initial plan, it looked like the dog was going to like rip his throat out. Even though there were skeletons, so they made it a little friendlier. But uh, yeah, they 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 took this photograph and reconstructed him and uh, his dog as much as. Um, they possibly could or was accurate. And I really thought it was fascinating to, you know, not only, you know, see this this person who was, you know, significant to the field of anthropology, but um this sort of study in the vertebrate form, because most of the bones that, you know, you'd see in his dog were also present in Kranz. They're just a little bit different. Like there's really his dog had a bone that he didn't have, and that's the baculum. You know, male dogs have a penis bone. Um, you know, a lot of um I should throw in there too because this bone is often neglected that many female mammals, especially rodents, have uh, their equivalent genital bone called an oscillatoris or a balvellum that we don't really know what it does and it's kind of understudied and that's a whole other issue with you know sort of the sexism sometimes that exists in science and what we study. But uh, in this particular case, it was really neat to have this compare and contrast all laid out there and even though that we're separated from you know um, canids by over 66 million years of evolution – that you know, it's it's all still there. That you can map, you know, bone for bone, what's there between them. Yeah, that was pretty amazing. Um, some people might find that ghoulish, but I mean, I don't. I, I assume you don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's great. I mean, this guy was so devoted to his profession and to teaching that he really wanted. I mean, a lot of people donate their bodies to science, either as uh, you know, cadavers for medical school or the body farm or, you know, there, there are plenty of ways to do it. But this guy, I just think it's marvelous that he he's put me on exhibit, yeah. use my bones, you know. Yeah, so, I know personally that I, I would love it. Um, but that gets into, you know, a little bit of what I talk about later in the book in the sort of culture of science that there are people who that's a terrifying thought because yeah. there is a history of um, racism and violence that has been committed against many groups of people, you know, particularly non-white people, um, you know, using their – basically stealing their bones, stealing their bodies and then using – those bones to say, well, you know, these people aren't as intelligent or they, you know, are culturally backwards or, you know, now we have scientific proof that, you know, this order that we're trying to maintain, you know, this power that we're trying to maintain culturally is, is the way that it really should be. Um, and there's some stories, you know, particularly from, you know, uh, Native Americans who are archaeologists and anthropologists who they know all too well when they look at skulls and skeletons in collections, um, what that's meant to them in their culture. So someone like 
like me, you know, uh, who you know is coming from a relative place of privilege, it sounds great. You know, I love bones and osteology. To me, it'd be an honor to be in a museum or put on display. I can you know even see it now being reconstructed at like you know a facsimile of my desk with you know the skeleton of Jet maybe next to me, you know, waiting for a walk. But to to other people, it's not even so much ghoulish, but it's a reminder of the way um, science has sometimes abused its power, mm-hmm. and that you know. Anthropology in um, the United States started out as a racial and racist science. And by that, I mean that the primary question that anthropologists in the 18th and 19th centuries were concerned with were basically defining and delineating and ranking races of people. And a lot of you know, the, the um, racism and you know, basically social consequences that came from those things we're still dealing with today. Like I, it, it really took me aback that, you know, I had, you know, we all have that in-law or we all have that relative or whoever it is that, you know, has a certain political view that they want to share and hearing some things that they were saying about, um, you know, people of color or otherwise are exactly the same things that some of these anthropologists were saying in the 1800s. And, you know, even though we might like to think that we're well beyond those things, that the science has moved beyond those things, that we're being more responsible now, that we're really starting to talk about consent a lot more in terms of like how these bodies are collected and reposited and studied and all these things. Um, a lot of the effects that came from the origins of the science, they're still there. And I think that, um, you know, anthropology and archaeology still has a responsibility to confront these things and and to not sweep it under the rug. There was a quote that kind of incensed me when I read it. Um, there was a, a technical volume on 20th century anthropology and archaeology. And uh, in one of the quotes, the, the researcher included this in the book as well, was saying, well, you know, Chemistry got its start through alchemy and astronomy you know, got its start through astrology and things like that. And just because we used to do things wrong doesn't mean that we we're going to throw out the modern science. It's like I, I get the point. But at the same time, anthropology started in such a way that it caused incredible harm and suffering to a lot of people and we're still stuck with that. So you know, it's easy to walk away and say, OK, we're, we're doing better now. We're a bit different. But – the effects of, of how things started still remain and there's still you know people you know if we think of bone skeletons as people and not just as scientific objects uh, we don't know how they were collected where they came from you know what happened to them how they were traded around you know in museum collections and it causes people distress to this day and we're, we still have to confront this and, and um, I think there are some anthropologists and archaeologists who are doing a good job of this and that uh, for example I think it was at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science and this is something else I mentioned in the book that there was a, a bunch of human remains that nobody knew who they were where they came from they were unidentified they didn't seem to be Native American but it's just human remains that weren't being used and a lot of these skeletons that aren't labeled or have no data they don't get used because we we don't have that critical information that actually makes them um, useful to science or tell us something that we want to know. Um, so the archaeologists, I believe, who you know oversaw these remains, they basically called in this this interfaith group and said, "Okay, like we're not sure what to do with these. We don't need them in our collection anymore. We'd like to give them a respectful end. Uh, how do we best do that?" And they came up with a solution that satisfied everybody. And I think even just having those conversations now about you know uh you know changing this old view of well the dead don't have rights like once you're dead you're dead and you know you can become an object or you're in the ground or or, or whatever it is um you know i'm i'm glad that we're moving beyond that and i kind of want to give a, a loudspeaker to those efforts yeah good uh yeah you talk in the book uh about typology and 
and how the kinds of early anthropologists were um, kind of trying to confirm typologies. And it's, it's ironic because it's after or concurrent with Darwin. And Darwin's whole deal was typology is completely wrong. There's such variation mm -hmm. rather than looking for a particular type that, I mean, that's why it's typology, a particular type that defines the species. I mean, you talk in the book about how, yeah, the basic human body plan is 206 bones, but, you know, more or less. Yeah, a lot absolutely. of people have extras or they're missing one or two. That's right. And it's a, a matter of how we look at things, whether we're looking for similarities or we're looking at differences. This is something that, you know, it goes back to my first book. So this has been on my mind for a while. So in my first book, Written in Stone, I wrote a whole chapter about human evolution and basically our transition from being more ape-like to, you know, the people we are now. But the amount of change that we went through is so minor compared to some of these other transitions in the book, like going from something that's more or less a fish to an amphibian on land or going from, you know, a feathered dinosaur to a bird or, um, you know, going from this little deer-like thing running around on the ground to, to a whale. Like these are pretty dramatic transformations where if you look at the skeletons of, you know, between us and, you know, Homo erectus or, you know, Lucy or, you know, going back to Artipithecus or whatever it is, like basically wherever you join that route, it's so small, but we've made them huge because we're trying to define ourselves as separate. And this is the same sort of issue whether we're talking about race or whether it's, um, you know, the, the number of bones in the skeleton or whatever it is that, you know, if we're looking for differences, yeah, you can find those, but you're always going to have these confounding factors, these variables and these things that don't fit, that basically if you set out and say, these are the boxes that I have and everything needs to go in a box, you're going to end up making mistakes and you're not going to see the bigger picture. So a lot of this is the way that we look at biological variation. The fact that, as you mentioned you know, with Darwin, this is the raw stuff that natural selection works on, that life wouldn't exist as we know it. Evolution wouldn't happen if we didn't have variation and this sort of connectivity between different you know, expressions of, of body forms and bone counts and, and all this sort of stuff. And you know, I, I know that there's a sort of um, you know, push at times to say, oh, well, we didn't know as much then. It was different. But there is a sort of social justice aspect to this and that you know we this wasn't you know something that was biologically prevalent that then you know we said well you know that's that's what nature nature is we're just following where the evidence leads these were preconceived notions that then biology was shoved into and it's taken a long time to dismantle those things and we're still doing that yeah it's not just raw data collection you quote darwin in the book talking about people who think well all you should do is collect and observe and uh, characterize. And he says, that you get nothing with that. Mm -hmm. You must have some kind of a theory that you're going to either um, confirm or overthrow with whatever you collect. And that will lead you toward what's really going on. Absolutely. And that, I mentioned that in the case of uh, Samuel Morton, who was in the news again uh, relatively recently. So to recap this relatively briefly, uh, Morton was a Philadelphia um, polymath and naturalist and anatomist in the uh, mid-1800s. 
and you know he was very concerned with like defining the five races of people and he was going to do this through skull measurements and you know he started collecting what human skulls he could and people started sending him skulls and you know, we don't always know where these skulls came from or even if the data that came with them were correct so he gets something that was labeled as you know Egyptian or Ethiopian or belonging to a particular native american tribe and it's like he j- he just went with whatever the label was that was sent we don't know if any of this is actually accurate but in any case he amassed this huge collection of skulls and he was going to do uh, or he carried out this experiment where first he used I think mustard seed to like pack it into the cranium of these skulls and you know come up with the endocranial me- measurement. So basically how big the brain was since there's a relatively close fit between brain and, and skull. So if you have the skull, you can get an estimate of the brain size. Um, and he didn't he, – he threw out the mustard seed results because he found you, you could basically pack more in depending on – you know and he couldn't control for the variables and seed size and stuff like that. So he basically used BB pellets. Um, lead shot um, as a replacement because even though it didn't fill the volume as completely, it came up with much more accurate and repeatable measurements. So, um, you know, and he, you know, was kind of um, has been held up sometimes by anthropologists as sort of the objectivist of his age. He didn't theorize. There was, you know, a preface to his book talking about, you know, how important it was by a, a famous phrenologist, but really it was basically in his books is here's the data and here's how I'm organizing this. And I'm just going to let people do with it what they will. And what people did with it was justify slavery and that, you know, white people should be at the you know top of social power and all this stuff. And Morton didn't like say a word about this because he more or less agreed with it in his private letters. Um, but you know, as um, you know, the Civil War played out, as you know, evolution by natural selection became accepted, and variability became um, you know much more interesting and prevalent to biologists. You know, basically all, all this work that Morton did eventually fade into the background until along comes one of my writing heroes, Stephen Jay Gould, in the late twentieth century, and he looks at Morton's results. He's like, yeah, he um, when you look at the difference between the mustard seed uh, results and the lead shot results. Morton seemed to be actively, perhaps subconsciously, suppressing um, the endocranial volume of people of color. Uh, that basically, that that you know, when um, you look at the difference between those initial results that he didn't think were super accurate, and the ones they felt were more accurate, the differences between them seemed to show some bias in there, and this caused you know a, a big to do in recent years because the people who keep the Morton collection currently went back and said, well, Morton's at measurements were accurate, but they only looked at the lead shot results. They didn't actually address the point that was being made. That's the difference between them that shows Morton's bias. And what I really appreciate is that a lot of historians have since come out and said, this is garbage in, garbage out. That, you know, it doesn't really matter how accurately Morton was making his his measurements. The fact was that he had a preconceived notion about biology that we know was incorrect. He was taking in skulls from wherever that might not have belonged to the categories he was putting them in to start with and then taking measurements and just kind of putting those out there without interpretation or theory or anything else. And it's an interesting episode in the history of science. But you know, either tearing Morton down or defending him on the basis of how he took his measurements doesn't really make any sense because it, you know, it, it doesn't really matter – what the lead shot results were, or the mustard seed results, or, or anything like that. It, it was that he was working from a typology that we know is incorrect and was carrying out science in a way that's not repeatable or, or, or understandable. Um, but I wanted to use that as an example um, 
I guess, of how these debates still you know, affect us and how sometimes we can lose sight of what's actually important here. Like we can quibble about, you know, whether this measurement is accurate or not, but it's like, but what framework are we actually putting this into? Right. I mean, within his framework, wouldn't elephants be a lot smarter than us? Probably, yeah. Yeah. You know, blue whale would be the smartest creature <laughs> right. on the planet. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And, and maybe it is. Yeah. But, yeah. but we, we, we currently don't have the ability well, to know that. We'll see if that's the, that'll be the Douglas Adams effect. If exactly. all the whales just you know, go into space one day, we'll know. <laughs> exactly. Or maybe they've just gotten way past everything we do. Hey, man, I'm just hanging yeah. out in the ocean. I'm, uh, I'm living the dream. Well, as, so, as someone who suffers from depression and anxiety, I'd, I'd like to know the whale's secret if that's the case. <laughs> You in the past have uh, really concentrated on mostly dinosaurs and other paleontological stuff. Why did you decide to turn your attention to um, the skeleton, especially of human beings? Because this – you you do range a lot in the mm-hmm. book. But basically the the through line is we're looking at our own skeleton here. That's right. Yeah, I think um, the genesis for this – came from I was doing some field work out at a ghost ranch in New Mexico and uh, there's a site out there called the Hayden Quarry that's about 220 million years old or so and um, the paleontologists who study it, uh, most of them are uh, Berkeley alums and they all know each other and they've been doing this for a number of years and um, you know, I was lucky enough to, to go out and do some field work at the site. So you know, thinking about bones all day, you know, scratching away, you know, lo- looking for them, looking for you know, early dinosaurs and their neighbors. Um, but at night, you know, we hang out in camp and somebody was talking about how for a PhD defense of another researcher who I think was not present at that time. But um, he spent his whole defense, oral defense, on the question of just what is bone? And we can define it um, you know, in relatively basic scientific terms. That is a combination of collagen, um, which is the flexible part, and hydroxyapatite, which is the hard mineral part. And you put those together and you get something that's both strong and flexible. But that's not really – satisfying you know that doesn't really you know get at i think the the meaning and the poetry and the expression of of bone you know if if you you know walk up to uh you know the t-rex skeleton here at the american museum of natural history and say yeah it's a pile of hydroxyapatite and collagen um that's not really you know it doesn't get at you know what the the way that uh, i feel or think many people feel about bone so it really i i started with that thread of well, well what is it and how did it form, where it appear, how to open up. And and this led to a lot of like, I didn't know that moments. Like I didn't know that, for example, the layout of our skeleton and the formation of bone as a tissue were two separate events. They didn't go together. Um, and I wanted to, you know, basically as, a, as I started pulling at these, these threads, talk about bone as something living. Uh, this is really how we started off even this, this podcast, talking about bone as a living, malleable, changing tissue. Uh, and so often when we see it in pop culture with some exceptions, you know, except, uh, you know, one counterexample would be like uh, the Day of the Dead celebrations in, in Mexico. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, you know, it's like, you know, the Jolly Roger flag on a pirate ship, you know, poison labels like don't drink this, death metal album covers because we only really see bones um, with the exception of things like CT scans or x-rays or things like that. Like basically after death, that like they stand for these symbols of permanent death when everything has been stripped away. Um, and I wanted to take that sort of paleontological approach that if I wrote about my own skeleton or about the human skeleton in the same way that I've written about dinosaurs in the past, uh, how would I do that? And you know, even in the book preview, 
previous to this, uh, my beloved Brontosaurus, like, you know, I talked about, you know, dinosaurs and their biology and their skeletons, but also the pop culture aspect of it and what they mean to us and why. So it was really, um, you know, instead of looking backward so much, even though I talk about fossils and paleo quite a bit in, in skeleton keys, it was taking the same approach that I would use um, you know, to a stegosaurus skeleton and just turning it to people. Like not only you know, how did it form and what does it mean, how did it move, but what's the, the culture surrounding it and how have we interpreted this and how has that changed through time. And uh, you know, the through line through all my writing, even though I focus on fossils and paleontology, is, uh, most of it is um, how does science work? And that what are the questions we ask? How does that affect the answers that we feel that we get? How does that change over time? And that the change in the self-correcting nature of this is a good thing. It's You called out that Darwin quote um, earlier that you know it's something that I think is very easy to forget even for us who are you know, relatively scientifically minded. Sometimes it can feel like, OK, we learned a new thing. We're going to put it on the shelf and then we'll move on to the next thing. But fact and theory need each other. They're always intertwined that just a pile of you know what we think of as facts or as data um, – it doesn't really do anything unless it has a framework in which to interpret it. And that framework is going to change as we learn more as this dance back and forth between, you know, what we observe and what we think about it. And, you know, the way that I talk about that is through through bone. And and one other thing is, as you say in the book, you have one inside you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it's something that I, I don't know if other people do this and I, I really encourage people to to do this in the book and, and whenever I meet them is just like sit and think for a second about all those parts, all the little motions and things that we normally don't think about. One of my favorite is the um, interaction of our lower arm bones that you know your, your ulna which fits into your humerus and that gives you that hinge back and forth. There's not a lot of like lateral motion with that. You can move your arms sort of back and forth but you know it's just this – it's sort of like – that dog-like motion I mentioned before is just kind of forward and back. But our lower arms, what allows us to you know shake hands and manipulate things, it's this rollover of the radius over the ulna, and you can sort of you can feel that if if you hold there, even just, if you don't, if you just concentrate on that motion. And when you look at those bones, that it is rounded at the end. You can you you look at it and say, okay, that biomechanically makes sense. That this is something that is rolling over as we you know. If you put your palm up and then turn it so your palm is down, let that motion that's happening there, um, I think that's wonderful. Sometimes when I'm just bored at, at, at the airport or I'm out in the field and it's you know one o'clock and it's 96 degrees or something like that, I just sit and think for a second. Like it, 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 I haven't been able to fully manage this one yet, but even just thinking about like my own skull, there are skulls not one bone; it's this collection of a whole bunch of bones, and most of it's relatively static. But just being still and thinking like that's what's in there and holding all this wonderful stuff together. How many bones in the skull? Uh, I think there are about 22 individual bones. But I mean it varies. Uh, that's the thing that we – there are some bones called Wormian bones where sometimes uh, the skull bones don't fuse uh, in the typical pattern and there will be these little rounded bones that are left over from, from our childhood. I think it was particularly present um, in um, Incan culture. So sometimes it's called the Inca bone. Um, and that's another example. Sometimes we have bones we don't know about, like you mentioned, like the sesamoid bones, which are bones that grow in tendons. Your, your patella or your, your kneecaps are uh, you know, the most famous example of that. It's not attached to your femur. It's held in place by these soft tissues. But there are some other ones like uh, you know, underneath uh, one of your toes. You might have an extra sesamoid bone that you don't even know about. But uh, for the bones that we do know about, whether our ribs or our limb bones or anything else, I think it's you know, worthwhile 
sometimes just almost taking a meditative moment and thinking like it's not only in there, but it's it's changing, it's growing, it's it's part of you, and it tells your story. It's the only thing, you know, from our bodies that's likely to last for millions and millions of years. And that's how I tried to end the book was thinking about, you know, if, you know, when I eventually pass away, if I, you know, got fossilized or buried or something like that, what would a paleontologist of the future of whatever species they might be um, interpret about, you know, who who I was and, you know, kind of turning a lot of these questions back in on myself. So, you know, it's sort of interrogating the the human skeleton as I would a dinosaur skeleton, but then thinking about, well, what would somebody else be able to tell about me as a person if all that was left was even, say, just like half of my femur? And they'd be able to say quite a bit, like bones are our own little personal time capsules. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com. And don't forget to also visit our friends at the Nature website, www.nature.com, where you can check out the Nature Podcast. The latest one covers the success rate of invasive bird species and how to craft the perfect crepe. And back to Siam, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 